Thank you. You can be seated. Hey, it's time for Children's Church. And so if you're in pre-K through fifth grade, we will see you guys and girls later on. Go have a good time. And for those of you hanging around in here, would you open your Bible, please, to Psalm 120. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, please use one of those black ones in the pew rack in front of you. And I'll give you a shortcut. If you want a little help, you can find our passage in that Pew Bible on page 542. Uh, last week, we finished Romans chapter 11, and we're hitting the pause button on our study of Romans for a few weeks. We're going to pick up chapter 12 uh, right after Labor Day. I, I want everyone back from vacation as we continue and finish our study in Romans. And so from this Sunday to then, uh, we're going to spend our time uh, in the Psalms and specifically in a section of Psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. Holiday season requires three things. Uh, a great holiday needs us to, one, we need to decorate, two, we need food, three, we need music. Can you imagine going through the Christmas season without Christmas music? Uh, that would be really, really strange. And so music is a central part of our holiday observances, and as it is for us, so it was for ancient Israel. Uh, in ancient Judaism, there were three holy days that were considered pilgrimage holidays. And what that meant was you were to do everything you could to make a trip to the holy city of Jerusalem to observe that holy day. Uh, and just like all good holidays, there was a soundtrack, a mixtape, a playlist for your journey to the holy city. And that playlist is what we think the Psalms of Ascent are. From Psalm chapter 120 to 134, these 15 chapters of the Bible, we feel like are a songbook within a songbook. And that these were the songs you would sing on your way to the holy city for an audience with the Lord. Why are they called Psalms of Ascent? Well, again, here's what we think. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is a city at a reasonably high elevation, especially compared to the rest of the land around it. And so if you were going to Jerusalem, the language you would use to describe it, and you see it over and over in the Bible, is we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, we use up and down language in our geographic discussions, but that normally denotes north and south. Like you might say, I'm going up to Maine or I'm going down to the Cape. No one from this zip code would say, I'm going up to the Cape and I'm going down to Maine. That doesn't make any sense. But it didn't matter what direction you approached Jerusalem from. You were climbing to get to the city. You, whether you came from the north or the south or any place else, you were going up to Jerusalem. You were ascending the hill to the holy city. And so that's perhaps our best guess as to why this collection of songs is called the Psalms of Ascent. They are psalms for the journey up to the holy city where you and the worshiping community will gather together to exalt the name of your God. These psalms cover a wide variety of subjects, and the intention of each psalm is to draw 
the worshiper closer to God. Message. Can I call you later? <laughs> gotcha. All right. Uh, Bob, I messaged him, said you'll call him later. It's all right. Um, so a wide variety of subject matter covered in the Psalms. Uh, and, but there's, there's this one common thread. When, when you look at these 15 songs together, uh, they are all drawing the singer closer to the Lord. These are the songs of spiritual renewal. And so if by chance you came in here this morning tired, worn out, spiritually dry, then these are your songs and these are your Sundays. And we begin our journey to our audience with the Lord in Psalm 120. The holiday season kicks off with song number one. Follow along with me as I read this song, Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Lord, rescue me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. What will he give you and what will he do to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with burning charcoal. What misery that I have stayed in Meshach, that I have lived among the tents of Kedar. I have dwelt too long with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. What a weird way to start the holiday season. Such a downer of a song. Like your first Christmas song of the year, you want it to be hopping. You want it to be good, full of energy and joy. You don't want, I don't, I don't know what the saddest Christmas song is, but you don't want that one. You want a great one. And you might expect that the first psalm on our journey to the holy city would be one full of energy and excitement and joy and praise. But this is a lament. It is heavy. It's very, very serious, and, and I think that's the genius of this group of songs, and the genius of the first one in particular is it names the reality of our situation, and our reality is quite difficult. You see, we are traveling to the holy city, so to speak, because we are spent and weary and battered and in need of the Lord's help. And Psalm 120 confronts us with the reality that this world is not our home. As a follower of Jesus, you are more and more unlike the people you live around. Your values are different. Your motivations are different. Your view of the world is different. And those differences are only becoming greater and at light speed. And the impact of this reality can cause real spiritual distress for those who walk with Jesus. God's people have frequently dealt with feelings of isolation and loneliness as if we are living in a spiritual wilderness. And you can feel this intense isolation either as a member of society or perhaps at the job you work or maybe even as a member of your own family. Sometimes being a follower of Jesus means spiritual isolation from those around you. And so Psalm 120 is a song from this perspective. And although the subject matter is heavy, it's still a song that is hopeful. The song breaks down easily into three parts. Each part 
has the singer addressing a different audience. At least that's going to be my take on it this morning. First of all, the singer speaks to God. The singer tells us of their request of the Lord. Second, the singer speaks to the non-believing world. And then third, the singer speaks to fellow believers, speaks to the church. And in each of these three parts, we find instruction for how to pray in the wilderness. That's what I want to show you this morning, three ways to pray as a follower of Jesus in a world that rejects him. So I want you to take a couple of notes this morning, and I want you to plan on praying this way in the week ahead. How do we pray in a world in which we are strangers? First of all, we pray this, God, rescue me. Verses 1 and 2 give us this simple prayer, God, rescue me. The song begins with a location. The location from which the song is sung is a place of distress. So the starting point for the journey to meet with the Lord is distress. We don't start from our strength. We don't start from vitality or victory. As sinful people in a sinful world, we begin in a place of distress. And the distress of this song is not some generic trouble, but rather the song names the specific cause of the distress for the singer. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 names the distress. Lord, rescue me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. I think it's important to note that this is not a prayer for more stuff, as if the singer is in distress because they don't have enough things. And this is not a prayer for healing, although every singer of Psalm 120 is going to have an ailment of some sort, but rather this is a prayer for rescue from a land where the child of God does not fit. Lord, rescue me from lying lips and deceitful tongue. What are the lying lips and the deceitful tongue that the song speaks of? Well, if you look through the rest of the song, you'll find that the singer is describing the antagonistic, unbelieving world that they live in. This song is about living as a person of faith in a world that rejects your God. So I take the descriptors, lying lips and deceitful tongue, to be poetic descriptions of people who are at war with each other and also at war with God. If this is a land of lying lips and a deceitful tongue, then the lying and deceit is being done to one another. That's war with each other. And if lying is the environment, the atmosphere in which these people live, then they are doing so in defiance of God, who in the ninth commandment said, Thou shall not lie. So to say this is a land of lying lips and a deceitful tongue is a poetic way of saying these people are at war with each other and they are at war with God. As it was in ancient Israel, so it is today. The followers of Jesus can best be described as being in the world, but not of it. And as a follower of Jesus, every day you are facing messages that war against the truth of the gospel. I trust you don't need me to articulate what those messages are that are counter to the gospel, that are indeed anti-Christ. They come with the ebb and flow of cultural values. They come with headlines that rage at the anger of the day. They come with 
human-centered decisions about who we are and how we should live. They come wrapped in ferocious individualism where we we reject the, the wisdom and counsel of others around us and we rely only on our broken selves to answer our biggest questions. We live in a world that rejects the truth of God's word and his kindness and compassion to us. And that can be really troubling when you learn that your commitment to follow Jesus results in estrangement from the world. One of the things I I love about being a Christian in this area is there is no social benefit for you to be a follower of Jesus Christ here. Doesn't help your kid at school, doesn't help you at work, doesn't help you make friends and influence people, doesn't, may not help you on the dating scene. It is of no social advantage for you to love Jesus and to walk with him and to live according to biblical values, which means this is a great place to be a Christian and a great place to love Jesus and walk with him. But Let's be clear that even so, it can cause real distress when we realize, we get very personal about these things, to walk with Jesus may mean uh, it's going to hurt relationships with people I love and care for. For some Christians, this can be troubling to the degree that they might even reconsider their commitment to Jesus. But brothers and sisters, we have to see the world for what it is, and we have to see our God for who He is. To see the world for what it is, it is a place in need of God. And who is God? He is Savior, Redeemer, Redeemer, and a lover of souls. So while this song laments the state of the non-believing world and our place in it, if we will expand our perspective just a little bit, we might find that the problems of verse 2 hit much closer to home than we realize. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 6? When Isaiah had a vision of the throne room of God, he found himself standing in the presence of the unfiltered, holy, holy, holiness of God. And do you remember what Isaiah said in that moment? In Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, he said, Woe is me! For I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah didn't just say, woe is me because they're all bad. He said, I'm a part of this as well. You see, the rescue that Psalm 120 asks for is not merely a rescue from sin and sinners outside of us, but it's from our very own sin. And the real danger of singing Psalm 120 as a follower of Jesus is that we might do so with a legalistic, pharisaical heart in which we would sing these words while looking with judgmental disgust on our neighbor and saying, thank God I am not like them. We are people of lying lips and deceitful tongues, living in a land of lying lips and deceitful tongues, and we need rescue even from ourselves. And so we pray from our distress. 
And our distress is caused by sin's impact on the lives around us and on our own lives. And from our distress, we ask the Lord to rescue us. Now, there's something curious about verse 1 that I've been really hung up on. At the end of verse 1, the song tells us, I called to the Lord and He answered me. Where's the answer? It isn't articulated in the lyrics of the song. But the singer says, I called, God heard, and He answered. So I think there's two different ways we can make sense of the absence of the answer. First, it seems to me that this is our regular experience in prayer, is it not? That God answers, but He doesn't give us the details. Are you okay with that? Probably not. We struggle with it because we, we need a fully detailed report with timestamps of when all these things are going to go down according to what we have prayed in Jesus' name, amen. But our God is not obligated to us to tell us what He's doing or when He's doing it or how He's going to be doing it or why He's going to be doing it that way instead of our way. But still, He is our Heavenly Father who loves us. And when we call on Him, He hears and He answers. We may not know the details, but our experience is God always answers. So in this beautiful way, Psalm 120 verse 1 shows us our real regular experience of turning to the Lord in need. The second way we might make sense of the lack of a detailed answer is the possibility that the answer came well after the song. You see, you and I have the privilege of reading Psalm 120 on this side of Easter. And we know what it means when God rescues. We know that our sin is so profound that we cannot rescue ourselves. But God loves us and He provided rescue for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to understand this so clearly. Your sin against God, all of our sin against God, is horrific. It is soul-tearing. It destroys our relationship with our Creator who loves us. And that is our fault. I'm the sinner. You're the sinner. We're the ones who have rebelled against Him. And as the one we've sinned against, He has every right to just be done with us. But that's not His character. He is compassionate and merciful. There's nothing we can do to make up for the sin we've committed against Him. It's impossible that you can do enough good to overcome the bad that you've brought into existence. We need rescue from outside of ourselves. And that's what God the Father has done for us. He sent His one and only Son. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the one you've sinned against. And He came to us, took on flesh, dwelt among us, and He died on the cross in your place for your sin. He is perfect, sinless, the one and only sacrifice for our sins. There's no one who could do what Jesus has done for us. And while you were still a sinner, He died for you. And three days later, He rose from the dead. And His promise to everyone who hears this good news is that if you will turn from your sin and trust in Him, He will forgive you. He will rescue you completely and totally. You will be His child forever and ever. When you call, 
God rescue me. We know clearly how that happens. It has happened through the gift of his son who died and rose again and saves all those that call on his name. The apostle Paul used the language of rescue in the opening lines of his letter to the Galatian churches. Look at what he wrote in Galatians chapter 1 verses 3 through 5. He said, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So friends, when you, when you look at the world and the impact of sin around you and on you, let your prayer be this. God, rescue me. God, rescue me. And he answers that prayer. There's a second prayer this song teaches us. And the second prayer is this. It's God, give them grace. In verses 3 and 4, the song shifts audience. The first two verses, it's speech to God. Lord, rescue me. But then verses 3 and 4, it is speech to those who are outside the faith. And look at what the song says. Starting in verse 3. What will he give you and what will he do to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with burning charcoal. Who is the he? Verse 3, well, the he is God. What will God give you and what will God do to you? And these questions are asked of those who are people with lying lips and deceitful tongues, people whose lives are wrecked by sin. And what's the answer? What will God give? What will God do? Look at verse 4. God will give you a warrior's sharp arrows and burning charcoal. I take these two items to be poetic descriptors of God's judgment and wrath on sin. So how are we to make sense of verses 3 and 4? The person outside the faith The person who's not a believer might hear these two verses and say, that is so judgmental. You have no right to judge me. And there might be some believers who hear these verses and say, you better believe it's judgment. That's right. It's about time. It's coming and you got it coming. And both of these perspectives are very wrong. Verses 3 and 4 are not judgment. They are grace. To the person outside the faith, it is grace to be told that one day you will stand before your Creator and give an account for your soul. And that those who are found guilty by Him will face horrific punishment. That's not something that's announced with glee and joy by the church as if we delight in the destruction of souls. It is a somber and serious and true warning that this is the time, this is the day to receive Christ as your Savior and to turn away from that judgment to come. It's hard for some people to accept that this is grace language. We want to think that grace language is going to be sugar and spice and everything nice, but sometimes grace language is a warrior's arrows and burning charcoal. It may be a harsh grace, but it is grace nonetheless. There's a type of conversation that perhaps you've had with someone you care about in your life that reflects this particular type of grace. 
I hope you've never had this type of conversation. But if you have, you know what it is when you've stood in front of a person you love who is making choices that, that are wrecking their lives. And your plea with them is you have to stop because the consequences are dire. You got to get help. You got to quit drinking. You got to quit using. You got whatever the thing is, you've made that plea. And in that warning is grace. Now, to be sure, there's judgment in that as well. And I don't know why we act like that would be such a horrific thing. I'm not judging a person's soul. You're not judging a person's soul. We're stating this is God's judgment, His declaration. But friend, if, if you don't turn, if you don't change, there's this judgment coming from God. So it is grace that today you hear the warning and you know that though there are a warrior's arrows and burning coal waiting, that today there can be a crown given to you adopted into his family, received by him. It is grace to give that message. Now, did you know that, that there are some Christians who would be disappointed in that message going to these types of people? Some Christians think that they want to actually witness the judgment of God fall on sinful people. But that sort of arrogance is not permitted for those who are seeking an audience with the Lord. In our study of Romans, we've been warned by Paul repeatedly against arrogance and boasting. In Romans chapter 2, he speaks to the Jewish reader to say, huh, you call yourself a Jew? You think this judgment on Gentiles is awesome? You, call your, you blaspheme God in your disobedience? Who are you? And then in Romans chapter 11, we heard it last week, he speaks to the Gentile reader. Oh, you think it's cool that Israel is rejecting the gospel? And so you think you have this privileged place? Hey, do not boast. Do not be arrogant. Our God delights to show mercy. There's no room for an arrogant heart against those who are rebels against God who will one day face his judgment. So we must pray, God, give them grace. Brothers and sisters, when we issue gracious warnings of judgment, we, we can't do so with the twisted anticipation of seeing people destroyed, but rather we have to do it with the compassion of Christ who prayed for mercy on the very people who mocked him and beat him and spit on him and cursed him while he hung on the cross dying for their sins and ours. So you must guard your heart. Anger is as marketable as ever. If you want a public platform, get angry about something. Claim that that thing is going to ruin the fabric of society. Sell a book, start a podcast, and you'll be a superstar. And we collectively will devour the outrage and be delighted. Do not be deceived by an anger that is only commercial. Do not take anger as your platform against the unbelieving world. There is a time and place for righteous anger, absolutely. But our response in the face of every ounce of brokenness, every human soul that rebels against God is this prayer. God, give them grace. It's the same grace that the prophet Nathan showed to King David when he confronted him about his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. 
It's the same grace that Jonah mumbled as he walked the streets of Nineveh, uh, announcing uh, three days yet and Nineveh shall perish. They heard of the judgment to come and they turned to God and found grace and mercy. And so it must be for us. The song teaches us to pray for our rescue. The song teaches us to pray for grace. God doesn't need you to fight for him. God does not need you to fight for him. A.W. Tozer said it right. He is the eternal undefended. He hasn't told you to fight, but he has told us, church, to be faithful with the gospel. You are no weakling when you announce the grace of God in a land of lying lips and deceitful tongues. Let us pray for the Lord's rescue and let us pray God give them grace. And there's one last prayer for those in the wilderness and it's this, God help me be like you. Verses 5, 6, and 7. This is the prayer that I think summarizes this message. God help me be like you. So in verses 5, 6, and 7, the song shifts audiences one last time. We started by speaking to God. Second, we spoke to the unbelieving world. Now I take the audience to be believers, the church, the community of faith. And in these final verses, the singer tells the church of the misery of living among people who reject God. Look at verse 5. What misery that I have stayed in Meshach, that I have lived among the tents of Kedar. These are real places. Meshach uh, was in modern-day Turkey between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Kedar is to the southeast of Israel. It was at one time a large kingdom that stretched out into the Arabian Peninsula. From the vantage point of Jerusalem, Meshach is far to the north, Kedar is far to the south. It's unlikely that the song intends to be literal here, as if the singer literally lived in these two places. It would have been geographically really difficult to live in both of those places. Possible, but unlikely. Rather, I take these towns as poetic references to living as far from the presence of God as possible. If Jerusalem is the unique center of the worshiping universe, well, to live in Meshach or Kedar is to live as far away as possible. Think of just a, a horrible city in America, someplace far from civilization and, and goodness, like Austin, Texas, someplace like that, I don't know. If you're not familiar, Austin, Texas is the worst, absolutely the worst. But... You, so you, we might say, we've we got towns that we, we just think sort of represent for us distance from civilization, from God, from goodness, from happiness. Uh, whatever that town might be, that's what these represent here. So the singer says, in essence, I live in a place that is far from God. And then in verses 6 and 7, the song details the major difference between the singer and the non-believing community. Look at it. Verse 6 I dwelt too long with those who hate peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. So if we were to craft a prayer inspired by verses 5 through 7, we'd want to take into account that the singer describes living in a place that seems far from God among a people who are opposed to the things of God. 
And so the final prayer might be what I've given you here. God, help me be like you. In other words, keep my identity like your identity. Let me reflect you as long as I live in this place with these people. I'm for peace, they're for war. Why can the singers say that they are for peace? Well, it's because they belong to the God of peace. And so peace is, is something that, or being a peacemaker or a peace desirer, it's something that's alien to the human experience. We are born with hearts ready for war, war against God, war against our neighbor. It's not natural that we would be peacemakers. And so for the person to say, I'm for peace, that's evidence of a heart that's been transformed by the Lord. And so, God, I carry your identity. I carry this marker of yours. And I live in a place where people are not for that. They are for war. I'm for peace. I'm, I am for what you are for. And they are opposed to that. The prayer is, God, keep me like you. Don't let my identity that's been shaped by you shift towards sinful thoughts and ways. God, let me reflect you to these people that I live around. It's understood. God's for peace, and if this is who he is, I'm going to be like him in a land that is for. Do you think it's by mistake that God would put a peace lover in the middle of war lovers? Does, does God hear this statement and then say, oh, poor baby, I'm so sorry. I didn't even see this coming. I really thought these neighbors were going to be better for you. I thought you guys might play some cards and have a good time and everything would be great. I didn't even know you'd be for peace and they'd be for war. Don't you think the sovereign God who orchestrates everything in creation knows why he puts his people where he puts them? It's no mistake. And it's the right prayer to pray, God, where I am and with who I live around, keep me like you. It's the same sort of prayer reflected in Psalm 23. You sang it just a little bit ago. Remember this in Psalm 23? David said this starting in verse 4. He said, even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So in the dark valleys of Meshach and Kedar, and among enemy people who love war, we are protected and cared for by our good shepherd. And our protection is not only from threats outside, but also from those that are at war in us. You see, while the Christian has been delivered from sin's penalty by faith in Christ, we're still being delivered from sin's power. And that's why Peter encouraged us this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He said, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. God, keep me like you. Help me be like you. For those I live around and for the sake of my own holiness, help me be like you. It's interesting to me that verses 5, 6, and 7 are in the first person. They're spoken as personal testimony. But I don't think Psalm 120 was sung as a solo. 
I think it's sung by the community of faith, the choir of believers together. And I think that's intentional because it's a reminder to lonely pilgrims that you're not alone. You belong to a family of faith defined by the Lord's shalom. You are held by Him. You're not alone in this. All of us together are striving to reflect the character of Christ because Jesus told us, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. God help me be like you. So Psalm 120 is an unlikely opening song for our holiday travels. The song of lament gives us three hopeful prayers. God, rescue me. God, give them grace. God, help me be like you. If we didn't have this song, then what sort of song might we sing instead? The song speaks of distress and lies and deceit and misery and war. And so you could sing a different song. You could let your circumstances shape your theology so that God is either the cause of your distress and misery or he's just powerless or heartless to do anything about it. But this song teaches us that in God... Our distress and misery are met with answer and rescue and grace and peace. Every Sunday, we make a pilgrimage to this place in order to meet with God in a special way. It's true that He is just as present and powerful in every other place in your life. That is true. However, we come to this building every Resurrection Sunday for sanctuary from a world that wars against our souls. And very often we might walk in these doors in much distress and misery and we come with a complaint, God, this world is impure, this world is dark, what should we do? And he answers you listen close, you might hear the words of Jesus say this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus knows better than you what it is to be rejected by the world. And still, he died for us while we were still sinners. And in the same way, the children of God are to go into the world and do good works in order to fight the impurity of the age and in order to shine the gospel light in the darkness so that God would be glorified. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to sing Psalm 120, you better be ready to do work in the name of Jesus Christ. Let whatever space you find yourself in in this week be filled with salt and light for the glory of God. Let your words be gracious and kind. Let your actions reflect the sacrificial love of Christ. Be generous. Serve others Show them Jesus and give them the gospel.
Who will you serve this week? Is there a name that pops into your head, a face, someone you know, your path's going to cross, they're in need? Who will you serve this week? In a land filled with war and rage and turmoil, how will you who are for peace be a peacemaker? Who are you going to serve this week? When will you see them? When will you speak to them? What good works will you do in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit? When you sing Psalm 120, you go into the world as salt and light. Now, many people would classify Psalm 120 as a psalm of lament. Certainly, it has a very heavy subject matter, but I think that's the wrong categorization. I don't believe for a moment that this is a song of sadness, but rather, this is a song of praise And it begins that way in verse 1 with the resolution to all the sorrow that follows. In my distress, I called to the Lord and He answered me. If that was the last verse of the song, then we would shout it in victory. We like a nice linear sort of song, this natural progression from chaos to resolution, to this new way of living. We like that sort of nice, neat storytelling. So the fact that the praise is the first verse shouldn't dull our voices or lead us to read the rest of it in a sad way. Instead, the opening praise sets the tone for the song so that every spoken lament that follows is already met with the reality of our rescue. So here is our praise And this is our testimony. In our distress, we called to the Lord, and He answered us. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for being the God who hears Your children. Thank You that when we call on You from our distress, You hear and You answer us. I'm so grateful that You're not just an idle observer. You're not some disinterested listener. You are the God who acts. And when you answer us in our distress, you don't answer from far away, but rather you answer from within the distress. We know that our prayers don't get to your ears because of the volume of our voices, but because of your presence with us. God, thank you for meeting us in our need. Thank you for walking with us in our distress and misery and turmoil. And thank you for the hope we find in Psalm 120. God, rescue us from the impact of sin on our lives and in our souls. And God, give grace in abundance. And now would you reap a harvest of souls among our neighbors, our families, our co-workers, our friends. Let them see and hear the gospel in us that they might call on Christ for their salvation. Be gracious to them. And Lord, keep our identity anchored in you, that we would be your people, bearing your image and your love to all those we come into contact with, so that your name would be praised and glory would come to you. Let us be salt and light in a world of lies and deceit. Father, thank you for giving us this most holy task and the power to see it through. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.